You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the 144th episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is Mike Worthley. Hello, everybody. Welcome back, Mike. Thanks. Good to be here. Absolutely. Mike, LG has been rumored to be producing iPhone camera modules in a new factory. Now, now the news on this, the rumor on this, is that there's a new LG Inotech factory that's been established in Vietnam, and they are focused on churning out single and dual-edge camera modules for various iPhone models. Uh, the idea is that this is going to be able to match the demand for the iPhone. The, the rumor says that they're pushing out 100,000 modules per day here as we close out 2017, but that mass shipments are really only expected to kick off in 2018. This is coming from South Korea's ET News. Um, what do you think is unusual about this report, if anything? Now, I'm not certain how unusual this is going to be other than the fact that the site is devoted to Apple products. I'm not certain about that part. It, it's an obvious move. It's a logical move. A Apple has been in bed with LG for a long time for parts and supplies. The, in fact, the first time I remember hearing about LG and Apple parts was I have to, in the 90s and late 90s sometime at some point. So the Vietnam location is interesting. Um, it's said to be LG's first producing iPhone cameras outside of South Korea, which is fascinating to me. Now, let's keep in mind the 100,000 modules per day by the end of 2017 doesn't necessarily mean quality approved modules. That's, That's just, just yield. Here you go. Here's some modules. Run them through your tests and accept what you accept. Well, now, obviously, they have to be functional. They do some quality checking on them. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they're functional, but this has been historically a thing with Apple. Like, well, you'll get, say, 100,000 of the widget they need for their new product. Apple will take half of them and the other half of them will go somewhere. And if anyone remembers back to HP's tablet initiative, the engineers lamented the fact that they were stuck with Apple cast-offs. Right. So I'm curious to see what happens with this factory and where parts end up going forward. Yeah. Historically, Sony was the provider of cameras for, for iPhone cameras for a long mm -hmm. time. And mm -hmm. so what this sounds like to me is both Apple not being tied to a single supplier and also trying to meet the, the greater demand that they forecast. Yeah, Apple talks a lot about multiple supplier avenues for things, and they say because they don't like being stuck with one supplier, but I think some of the reality of the situation is when you're looking at these kind of volumes on a single component, I, I think that you can really challenge and really strain a single supplier for any given thing. Well, and the, the flip side of that is what happened with um, Imagination, where mm -hmm. Apple was the primary customer, and when the primary customer decides they no longer need you, there goes your business. Yeah, and uh, LG is obviously not in the same position as uh, as a GPU manufacturer is, where they're only selling Apple. But yeah, I mean, anything like this has any more has vast implications for a company's bottom line. And LG has had good days and bad days financially. It'd be interesting to see what this does to their bottom line. Definitely. So there are three iPhone models with camera dual lens. There's the seven plus, the eight plus, and the iPhone ten, which mm -hmm. goes on sale for pre order tomorrow. Midnight Pacific time. And by the time you read this, it'll actually be today. Oh, no, it will be tomorrow. I'm sorry. Time uh, wait, zones wait. and things. As, as we record this, as we record this, today is Thursday. You'll be listening to it Friday. And so that that uh, Friday midnight time, there you go. Yeah, and we'll be talking more about that a little bit later. I'm intrigued at the various things that Apple said about the pre-order process and where you can get them. Exactly. So 
There are also single lens phones still for sale, right? There's the 6S, the 6S Plus, the SE, the 7, and the 8. So it's um, it's not clear yet which of those models will eventually be phased out, right? I Well, I think Apple's going to have single camera models for some time to come. I, I think that the dual lens cameras are going to leave for a, for a plus model or, or a, like in this case, the, the second high end model, the iPhone 10 this year. I'd be surprised if next year we didn't have a single and dual lens model as well. Yeah. No, we, we're going to have, well, you can expect the iPhone 8 to remain for sale next mm-hmm. year. And you can expect the SE to remain for sale in some form. I agree. E- even if the seven line, seven and seven plus both completely go away. The uh, and then the six and six S, you still remain with a dual and single lens in some form. I agree. All right. The other thing that was interesting about cameras. So we we talk a lot about security and vulnerabilities, and there is a Google engineer who has demonstrated that it is possible for a malicious iOS app to spy on a user. The proof of concept is capable of photographing a recording from both iPhone cameras, front and back, without the user's knowledge by exploiting the permissions granted by the user to allow access to those cameras. So the the concept here is that if you have an application that you've installed and the application asks permission to use the camera and you grant that permission because that's the single obvious purpose of the application, then it is possible for that app to photograph and record from the camera any time that the app is remaining in the foreground without informing the user the images and video are being captured with, ha- with flashes or other indicators. Now, it, it appears to me that it's not possible to photograph or video record with the app in the background. So if the application is open but remains not in the foreground, you have to access it through the, the multi-task switching, then that's not a, a part of this vulnerability. Yeah, that does appear to be the case. And this really boils down to user awareness of the situation. The The people at first glance will say, well, yeah, of course, you granted the app permission, so of course it's going to be able to record you. But the issue is here is user awareness. There's nothing in the Apple APIs that says that your camera is on. You have to be aware your camera is on. Pay attention, your camera is on. Hmm. And, and that's what this takes advantage of. Right. And, you know, one of the things is that from a privacy standpoint, sure, if you had your phone in your lavatory and you had it open to an application with the camera on it, but weren't intentionally taking a video and it could record you, yes, that's that's somewhat questionable. But at the same time, if you're using one of these many applications that uses your camera as a security camera and you want it to record on motion detection, then that's doing the same thing, but intentionally. Mm-hmm. So is this a big vulnerability in the way that we usually use that word? It's, it's not a big vulnerability per se. It's, it's definitely notable and something that the user should pay attention to. When an app asks you for permission to access something, you should pay attention to that. Um, specifically called out is that it, the researcher specifically called out things like social media apps that people just constantly click through. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I want this to be able to use my camera. And you can definitely cut down on your, on your cross section for vulnerability by just not blanket granting everything permission. But I, I do think that being aware of what you're installing, even from the app store is still pretty important to do. And if, if you're sticking to, yeah, I, I was about to use the word legit, but that's not exactly the word I wanted to use. If, if you're sticking to apps that you're fully cognizant of what they'll do and when they'll do it, that's your best bet here. 
Right. Uh, the, you know, an application issued by Snapchat or an Instagram that's well known that has a larger, uh, company profile, maybe more safe than installing something from mm-hmm. an unknown developer. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, it's Apple's pretty good with their app review, but things do slip through the cracks periodically. And, right. and maybe when you see some report of, Oh, Hey, this app does this fancy new feature and you should go install it right now. Maybe a little discretion on that is, is wiser than jumping on a new feature that Apple may not have, quote, previously allowed, unquote. You know, I, I agree with your call, uh, advising discretion, but I don't think that the the source of the company is necessarily a reassurance, right? If you're saying, if, if we think that, that large companies like a Facebook or a Snapchat or an Instagram are, are acceptable to install from with a little less thinking about... I don't think it works out that way because Uber has had a couple of notable problems mm-hmm. in the past sure for trying to use things that, that they weren't really authorized to use or shouldn't be using. Well, I'm not so, really sure at this point you want to call Uber a the, trustworthy company. No, no, but they're certainly though. large enough. Mm-hmm. And they have yeah, a, they have a great person on their staff for uh, diversity and human resources now. Well, they do now. Yes, now. And <laughs> that's part of the I issue. I said now. Is, but is they, the last part of that sentence. Yeah. No, they got Bose over there now, and Bose is great. So I'm, I'm hopeful that she can turn things around over there. The thing is, I think it comes down to what is your threat model? What risks are you really concerned about? And taking that into mind when you grant permissions rather than, than considering the source or or discretion is it's more like what are you afraid of what are the risks that you're thinking about exposing yourself to and how can you mitigate those risks i think that people with this with this issue with the crack vulnerability and all of those various types of situations i think that the user needs to evaluate who they are in reference to who the attack is aimed at yeah that's the threat model Right. For instance, last week with the crack attack is it's not really a widespread thing. It it does it would take effort to implement the attack and Joe homeowner is probably not the the primary target. Well, so let's let's talk about this a little bit. First of all, I I think that this particular vulnerability we're talking about here where there's a uh, a demo application that can demonstrate that the camera can record without you having to necessarily initiate a recording. I think this is honestly almost a non-issue. It's great that this guy thought to prove it like this and phrase it as a vulnerability, frame it as a vulnerability. But as I say, there are applications that exist that do this intentionally in the App Store today where they say, use your old iPhone as a security camera. It will start recording on motion detection. Perfect. That's exactly the same thing that we're talking about here, except that there, it's not a vulnerability. It's intentional. Great. Okay, the crack vulnerability, really my reading of it, and you can tell me uh, where, where I've got it right or wrong. <laughs> okay. My, my reading of it was that it affected 802.11R, which is the roaming part of the wireless standard that allows you to fast switch between mesh base stations. And so many routers that aren't mesh base stations and don't do fast roaming aren't even affected by this that your clients are, but if your clients aren't doing fast roaming and you don't have a mesh network set up, then you're likewise not affected by this, really, practically. Well, Should you yes, update I... all of your stuff? Yes, absolutely. Yes. But if you're not in a mesh environment and your your clients aren't set up in a mesh environment, then are you the direct target for this particular vulnerability? Uh, practically, not as much. With the 802.11ac 
crack situation. If you have a if you have a router and a computer and you patch one or the other, you're going to be fine in your own home. If you take your MacBook Pro when when iOS 11.1 for the iPhone or the new High Sierra version that will be coming out shortly comes out, then you will be protected regardless of if Starbucks has upgraded their base station or not. If you have now your your threat profile is slightly increased if you have like I have if you have three base stations in your house because you're fighting a bandwidth war with your neighbors. And and that's an interesting one. I mean, there's there's a tip hidden in there, which is figuring out which channels your neighbors are using and picking the channels that don't interfere. Yeah, it would be great if their routers didn't constantly hop all over the dang place. So, and that's really kind of what I'm dealing with here. Uh, but anyway, that's a topic for another show and another article. The, as far as vulnerabilities go, you're right. Like, like this particular one with the camera, not necessarily telling you if it's on or off, how much day, how much day-to-day impact is there? Not a lot. How much day-to-day impact is there with the vault seven releases that the, that the CIA used on, on mom, pa America? other than possible political ramifications, very, very little because you're not the target of the attack. So it's, I, I believe that for, forewarned is forearmed on situations like this. Mm-hmm. I believe that if you are the, 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 the ideal Apple insider reader, which means that you, the podcast listener are probably that knowing that this is a potential situation is good, but also knowing that your vulnerability your vector on this, the, the vector of attack for you personally on this is, is very, very small. And a little bit of situational awareness will prevent you from having to deal with it in the first place. Precisely. This is about balancing your risk versus your, your daily activities and really deciding how to govern yourself. But by being aware of it, it's, it's not a sky is falling situation. It's having that additional awareness and, and yeah, knowing but, to, but to address it. Yeah, but on the other hand, poo-poo it saying, well, yeah, you know, being able to turn on your camera, sure, camera recording apps, yeah, okay, that's... Well, but that's not being really aware, point. and that's not right. that's not keeping things well considered, right? And that's all we're right. saying is that it's not necessarily a sky is falling situation. You don't have to throw up your arms and run around like your hair is on fire, but do be aware of it and do take some consideration for what permissions you grant. Yeah, I'd just like to briefly editorialize on this for a minute. People ask us why we write stories like this. And about situations like this that aren't major issues. The problem is, is you're going to tune into your local news or your neighbor's going to turn into their local news and see this big new attack on iOS. And they're going to get that aspect of the story. They're going to get, uh, they're going to get 30 seconds. They're going to get maybe 60 words on the subject without the mitigating factors included, which we include, which we talk about. Well, and we talk about ways to minimize your danger if there is one. So be a good internet citizen and and point your friends to information that actually helps them as opposed to fear mongering. Likewise, if we didn't talk about them, if we ignored these stories because they weren't, uh, you know, they didn't have a great impact, we would easily be accused of being biased and and trying to cover up or ignore or put sweep under the rug. And, and, And there's no need to do that because this is not something to be that afraid of, but we certainly should talk about it. Right. Yeah. Let's move on. You know, I want to talk for a moment about Bombfell. And Bombfell is an online personal styling service that helps men find the right clothes for them. So clothes shopping for me is is kind of a nuisance. Um, 
it's not a pain exactly, but it's, it's you know, you spend time, you go out, you look, none of the stuff looks right, or you got to go try stuff on, or, or you otherwise just go ahead and say, well, that's my size, and throw a ton of stuff in the cart and walk out. And it's, it's difficult because, you know, unless you never have to actually see anyone in public or go to meetings, it's very much a, what's the right dress code for, for the right context? What's right to wear this meeting? You know, I, I would wear a sport coat and a button down Oxford shirt to some meetings, but if I was going to Apple, I'm, I'm going to show up with a little more loose attire, a little more casual attire, the jeans and the t-shirt or the jeans and the Oxford shirt. Now I can get away with over there. And so it's important to, to have, I don't know, some input into this kind of thing. And Bombfell does that for me. Bombfell, you know, I complete a questionnaire, dedicated stylist helps me handpick some pieces just for me. Uh, they send over the selections. I have 48 hours to make changes. When I receive them, I get to try them on. I get to decide if I want to keep them and I can send things back. It's, it's really, really easy and I feel in control and I don't actually have to leave the house to deal with it. They sent over some really nice pieces for me to try out. They, they sent out a sort of madras plaid kind of shirt that I wouldn't have necessarily picked on my own, but it turns out looking really nice on me. Uh, the fit was good. And they also picked out some, some uh, chinos that worked out really well. So we've talked with Bombfell. We've negotiated for you a special offer of $25 off your first purchase when you go to bombfell.com slash Apple Insider. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash Apple Insider. And uh, Apple Insider is an all uppercase. And their, their, their catchphrase is kind of catchy too. They're Bombfell, open and clothes. Everyone should be groaning at that pun. So, Mike. Yes. What phone is your primary phone? I have an iPhone 7 Plus for work purposes, but my main phone is an iPhone SE. Ah. So, are you planning on upgrading to the iPhone 10? I am not. Interesting. You're going to stay with your, your 7 for work and your um, SE. Yeah, I'm actually sticking with my SE, and I've, I've spoken about this elsewhere, but my main driver is my computer as opposed to people who have switched to iOS devices and using their computers and adjunct to that. It's just the SE just works better for what I need to do. Okay. And Neil also liked the SE, but Neil is going to swallow hard and go ahead and try move up to the, uh, the iPhone 10. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions that we, we get a lot is how is the best way to guarantee that you're going to try and get an iPhone 10 when you pre-order? Because this happened with the, the iPhone seven last year was that, Everyone swamped Apple's servers at midnight, and it was really difficult to go ahead and get that phone. Yeah, this is, this is going to be an interesting year, but it looks like this year, like last year, that the Apple Store app is going to be the way to go about doing that. That is different, because primarily in the past, it was the web, wasn't it? Yep, it was. And, and well, like in the early days, it was lining up outside the store, which, in interestingly, Apple has said that there will be, the iPhone X will be at Apple stores. So, you know, if they wanted the Thunderdome, this is how you get it. Yeah, well, in the, in the early, early days, it was lining up out, outside the AT&T store. Mm -hmm. True enough. So, here's here's what's going to happen. is they, They're going to have a limited iPhone X supply for walk-in customers. They are going to use the Apple Store app for iOS, as you say. So, first of all, everyone go ahead and download that app. Update your Apple ID information, update your iTunes information, make sure that your login credentials and your payment and shipping settings are correct. Uh, Apple Pay is a preferable payment option. 
You can provision a card through the wallet app or through settings. And in the US, go ahead and pick an AT&C Sprint Verizon customer uh, profile. It will have a banner. It will have select a model. You'll tap on the link and check your account status with your carrier. Go ahead and plan this all out beforehand. Figure out which storage option you want and which color you want and get it all lined up so that when you are sitting there at 12.01 Pacific time, it's easy to tap through all of these things. You'll have your options already laid out for you. You agree with that? Oh uh, Yeah, definitely. That's the way to go about doing that. And as another side effect, if you're on the iPhone upgrade program, the you can do 12 months payment thing and turn in your iPhone. Get that done now. You can preload. If you're already a program member, you can get that done now. And you really want to do that instead of waiting for the credit check because you're, you're in essence taking a new loan. Okay. So how do you go ahead and sign up for the upgrade pr- plan before midnight? Well, the, you have to, to, to get all this done first for the Apple upgrade plan, you have to already be a member and there's a web portal that Apple has established. And we've got an article about that on Apple Insider that they started uh, this previous Monday. Right. So su- that's, that's, suggesting if, that people if, that. so that's a separate issue, right? If you're, mm-hmm. if you're already, if you bought an iPhone seven, for example, or even the iPhone six S and are a part of the, the Apple iPhone upgrade program then you should follow those steps to go ahead and and get your upgrade to apply for your upgrade through that program. Yeah, and let's be, let's be perfectly clear about this. You don't have separate stock. You are in the same queue as everybody else. You do not have head-of-the-line privileges. Yeah, there, there are no head-of-the-line privileges. There are no phones set aside for upgrade options. It's one large bucket of phones, basically, and it's first-come, first-serve. Now, what I was thinking about was for the person who isn't in that program already, that, that if you are signing up for that program as a part of this phone for the first time, the path is to go this route and, and select that option. So the iPhone upgrade program pricing is going to be $49.91 per month for the 64 gig or $56.16 per month for the 256 gig. Mm-hmm. This option includes annual upgrades, like we mentioned, and also includes the Apple Care Plus warranty coverage. Um, the pricing with iPhone payments, which is a separate way of paying for it, is forty-one sixty-two per month for sixty-four gig or forty-seven eighty-seven per month for two fifty-six gig, and does not include the annual upgrades or the Apple Care Plus warranty coverage. So you'd have to buy that additionally if you were going to do it with the iPhone payments method. Uh, one-time payment pricing is of course nine hundred ninety-nine dollars for sixty-four gig or one thousand one hundred forty-nine dollars for two hundred fifty-six gig. So. Go ahead and do all of this beforehand, and then in the upper right of the iPhone of the the Apple Store application is a heart icon, and tap that to save your iPhone 10 configuration for later retrieval. So you'll be all set, all staged, all of your options set, and the configuration you want already saved in your favorites. When pre-orders go live, go ahead and tap on the Apple Store app, navigate to account tap on the iPhone 10 configuration that's saved under your favorites and tap continue. You'll have your carrier information ready, your phone number, your billing zip code, social security number in the US. All of that should be filled out, but you need to have it standby. Just just have it all there in reserve. Navigate to your bag and pay with Apple Pay or another credit card. And Apple Pay should be the fastest checkout option. Yeah, that sounds ludicrous to say, but this is going to be a situation where if you want exactly what you need for storage and color, seconds are going to count. And 
it's just because of volumes, it's just because of volumes of people and volumes of phones. It's, it's just, it's going to be crazy. I, I, I try not to involve myself in it, but every year I do. Yeah. Now, for iPhone upgrade program members, that is people who've already done that in the past, Apple opened up loan pre-approvals for iPhone 10 earlier this week. So there you go to the Apple Store app, navigate to the iPhone 10 landing page, and a block of text reads, in the iPhone upgrade program, question mark? You may be eligible to get a head start on your upgrade. Click on the link that reads Find Out Now and provide Apple with your member information to go ahead and get that pre-approval started. It's entirely possible that the system takes a few minutes to activate once they start serving it up at midnight. So refresh the Apple Store app. Don't don't count on waiting around for it to refresh of its own accord. And if all else fails, Apple retail outlets will have, as we said, a limited supply on November 3rd. Now... There's a different about it, right? What what to do if you're in the UK, which is one of our other listening areas. That's actually our second largest audience is in the UK. And so we, we welcome you and we want to help you here. If you're going to get the iPhone 10 64 gig in the UK, it's 999 pounds. And if you're going to get the 256 gig model, that is 1,149 British pounds. And the, the best thing to do then is... It pre-orders begin on, on Friday at 8.01 local time, which is, of course, midnight in San Francisco. The best way to do one is to go ahead and get your pre-order in at the Apple Store. And for you guys, that's apple.com slash UK slash shop. And that will go ahead and get you sorted out. Or again, there's always waiting in line at the store, but bring supplies because I think yeah. this is going to be a rough one. And And for our UK listeners... I would say, if you can, try and have that, that URL open in Safari on your laptop, as well as trying the Apple Store app. I'm not sure if the Store app for the UK is upgraded to or has been updated to allow this kind of thing for pre-orders. That's something that I just do not know. But the... Uh, the details seem to be that the best way is to try and do it through the browser. For the, no, that's what that, for that is my assumption as well, my understanding as well. Yeah. Changing gears a little bit, Mike... You've got the Yale Assure Lock SL. I do, in fact, and we published an article about it on Wednesday when I was looking at getting it fit for my door. I'm happy to say it went on in about 20 minutes with no difficulty. So um, we'll be talking more about it as far as full integration with my lifestyle and with HomeKit in future days, but it's a, it's a nice product. It's a solidly built product you know, by Yale. It's If you think home locks, you usually think Yale. Mm-hmm. I had a hands-on experience with this lock at CES in January. And what's interesting about this lock is that what they've done that's different from everyone else who's made a lock is everyone else goes ahead and makes separate SKUs for each different type of connectivity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here, Yale went the the neat route of making the lock itself with its motor and, and so forth and antennae uh, the same unit and the touch panel, the same unit, and instead putting the radio for it and the, the, really the brains of the, the unit in its own skew, in its own little plastic module that then inserts into the lock when you're assembling the lock on the door. You're right. If you look at the show notes, that's a little bit further down from the uh, from the SoundCloud embed on the homepage. If you look at the article for this, there's a little orange Game Boy cartridge looking thing. And that's the HomeKit module that snaps into the top of the lock on the inside, of course. Yeah. When I was looking at this at CES, the uh, the Zigbee Z-Wave module is green, for that matter. So they're not only little cartridges, they're also color-coded. The cool thing about this is that it means that if you have the lock and 
you decide that you need the lock to work with something in the future, that that becomes a possibility. That provided that they're still using the same cartridge format, you could go ahead and change the, the lock brain without having to actually change the whole lock. I'm not expecting a whole lot of new standards to evolve in the future, but I definitely agree that the, the cartridge aspect for the networking on these locks is a great idea. Well, the, the thing about it is that, so we have HomeKit, we have Z-Wave, we had Wemo out there for a little while, mm -hmm. uh, Google has had their works with Nest program, Google separately also has Thread. Yep. And so we're, we're trying to see these things come together. And in terms of what users know, users sort of know HomeKit exists a little bit, right? The, the iPhone user certainly knows HomeKit exists. Mm -hmm. There's people that know that works with Nest exists. There's people that know things like Alexa. And they don't want to know Zigbee, Z-Wave, whatever. They just want to know, does it work with Alexa? Right. Right? And Alexa has a, a large majority of, of um, installs among voice-first systems, right? They're the leading one in terms of a separate speaking unit as opposed to something like a Google Home that's much, much trailing and, and Apple's that hasn't even released yet. So you, you want to have that kind of compatibility. And, and generally, there's no problem with having a unit that has uh, HomeKit and works with Alexa and Google Home and it all at the same time. But would there be a need to have a thread radio? Maybe. It's not, it's not entirely certain because there are some advantages to having a thread radio like low power, where Wi-Fi traditionally doesn't. Yeah, I mean, to be clear with these cartridges, I, I, I think that they're a good idea, but I'm, I'm not convinced there's going to be a lot of migration from one ecosystem to another. I, I think if you are sticking with Alexa-compatible stuff, I think you're going to stick with Alexa-compatible stuff. I think if you are looking at Thread, that's where you're going to be. If you're looking at HomeKit, that's where you're going to be. And it's going to take a great deal of effort to push you from one ecosystem to another. Well, true. And the biggest savings here is the savings for Yale, who can make one skew yeah, one, one hardware and, and, and yeah. put in charge cartridges and assembly. And the only thing they right. have to change are the cartridge and the packaging. The thing that I think about is, you know, a thermostat can be traditionally was was a life of the home purchase, right? A thermostat was something that that was installed on the wall when the house was built, and unless it failed, tended to stay on the house for the life of the house. The, th you know, smoke alarms, smoke detectors get changed every 10 years. The door lock, unless you had to have it rekeyed or just didn't like the handle set anymore, could pretty much stay for the life of the house. The world that we're entering into is one where these kinds of products, instead of being life, buy it for life products, become buy it for five year products. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see how well the Yale touchscreen holds up. I have, my door is a south facing door and it, it gets sun all year, every year, constantly beating on that door during the day. So lo long term durability on this is something we're going to look at. I mean, I don't expect it's going to be a problem in the next year or so, but it's definitely something we're going to have to talk about going forward with HomeKit and other home automation products, I would think. Well, a part of that is just is the product UV stable and how long? Right. Right. Uh, UV stability is something that plastics suffer from where the plastic will become brittle and crumble and things like that. And, and the touchscreen is made of what? So that, well, that, that I, you know, actually now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure what the touchscreen on this is made of. I'll have to check it. It, it could be a plastic touchscreen, but it could be a glass touchscreen. We'll have to have to take a look and see if that. That's a good it, question. Something to look at. The, uh, the Schlage unit that Neil and I both have has a plastic touch panel for its, its unlock. The 
home the the quickset premise unit i can't quite recall what its surface was but i have a feeling it it was a plastic um these are considerations and i think the companies put a lot of time into designing these products and making sure that they're weatherproof they don't expect for them to become brittle like we were talking about no, they, I would, they I would expect from the last through the heat. You know, you've mm-hmm. got to be able to install them in extreme heat and extreme cold. They can't stop working when it becomes below 10 degrees, right? You have to be able to get into your house when it freezes. <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's something they've designed for, to be sure. What I, what I do like about the new generation of smart locks is on the outside, there are two contacts. And if the batteries, if the AA batteries, if you've ignored mm. the 10,000 warnings, it's going to give you that your batteries are low and you haven't replaced the batteries on the inside of the house. Then you can touch a nine volt battery to the outside terminals and give the lock enough power to cycle and do what it needs to do for you. Okay, this always felt like a. I, I get that they're trying to address the the don't lock me out kind of safety measure, but this seems like a dumb answer to me. Because what's the alternative? Where where um, change your batteries when it warns you, or keep your key in a in a as a backup. Yeah, there's no key. There's no external they've, key penetration. They've done away with the external key on this, which mm-hmm. is different than every other attempt so far. You know, that's but it's a weird one, right? Where are you keeping your nine volt battery, and how are you going to ensure that you've got in a fresh nine volt? Well, I mean that. Yeah, that's a separate issue, right? If you don't have a nine volt battery in your car, this isn't going to do you a whole lot and of good. I, everyone I carries a nine volt cell in their car, don't they? I guess you could always run the Seven Eleven and go get one. Oh man. But yeah, that doesn't seem optimal. It, but here's the thing, and maybe this is just how this house goes because of just the various challenges I have here. I actually have a maintenance schedule of things I do on, on a regular basis. Uh, like, for instance, subscription services I review every Halloween and every April 1st. Um, batteries for the house thermostat. Yeah, I need batteries for my house thermostat. I replace those every four months with... with um, the uh, Ikea version of the Eneloop battery. Uh, and and I, I just have, I have a schedule. It's on my calendar for battery replacement and to make sure something's working fine and to change hoses on the washer and dryer and, and things of that nature. And I know not everyone does that. And I'm reasonably certain this is left over from submarine service, but yes, th- this is one of those things that if you don't replace the batteries every X period of time, at least when the app warns you, you are asking for trouble. Mike, most people are lucky if they remember to change the furnace filters. Mm, true enough. <laughs> but yeah, it, you know, the, this is one of the first questions that any lock company has to answer is, what are we going to do to keep our customer from being locked out? And the answer has been backup keys. The answer has been uh, keys in the phone. The answer has, has been all kinds of things. And here it's, we've got a 9-volt connector, which is... Um, I feel like a less than optimal solution. It seems like a bad compromise to me. I feel like this could be answered in the future with USB-C and power delivery. I feel like this could be answered by having a USB-C cable in your car with a USB-C phone and being able to provide the lock power directly from your phone. Mm-hmm. But that's not today. That day is not today. Nope. No, it's not. Amazon has been trying to take advantage of cameras in u- unique ways this past year. They had the... Amazon Look camera that was a camera that worked with Alexa that you could put in your wardrobe and have video to you to advise you on fashion choices, sort of like a remote personal stylist. So totally not the market for that. Big success. Never mind that. They now have a concept where they're going to sell a cloud cam. And the cloud cam works with Amazon Key. 
Amazon Key is an option for Amazon Prime members that will allow delivery drivers to leave packages inside the home. What will happen here is that the cloud cam will go ahead and video the delivery driver, verify that the right delivery driver is arriving at the right place at the right time, work in conjunction with a Yale or Quickset smart lock, and allow the delivery driver to rock up. Uh, you'll get confirmation your package was delivered. You can watch the delivery driver open your door, leave the package, and leave. And this thing, the cloud cam, costs uh, $120. A two-pack's $200. And a three-pack is available for $290. The cloud cam with the Echo Show, which was the Amazon Echo with the screen, is also a $300 purchase. And uh, in terms of locks, you need that that uh, Yale or Quickset smart lock. The This is really a trial. They're running this in 37 cities, so it's not a nationwide option. It's not outside the U.S. yet either. And what they're doing is they're going to set plans up so that you can use the cloud cam as a part of this kind of thing. So besides the buying of the camera itself, you also have to spend $7 a month or $70 a year. And they have extended plans that cover more cameras kind of thing. So you really have to be A, a really big prime shopper, B, trust your delivery people, and C, be in one of those 37 cities, and D, willing to pay a lot of money for cloud storage for the camera. I wouldn't mind this so much if I had a better handle on what Amazon was doing to vet drivers. I understand that it will send you live video when somebody's at your house unlocking your house and delivering your Amazon package. I get that. That's great. That's how it should be. But if, if this was something that I chose to do, I, I think I would want to know more about that whole process. I'm reasonably certain that at least in this area, Northern Virginia, there's not a lot of, of delivered driver vetting other than you have a driver's license, you have a relatively clean criminal record. Yeah, you're good to go. Yeah, I'm not certain that's enough. I expect Amazon is leaving all of the driver vetting like you're talking about, specifically to the delivery companies. Hmm, you're probably right. Now, there are some places where Amazon has their own couriers. And so it's entirely possible that they're doing the vetting for those ones. And maybe that's the trial that's rolling out. The way that they say this works is that they verify that the correct delivery driver is arriving at the correct place at the correct time. And they know that by package tracking, right? They know which yeah, truck I'm the sure. package is on. And that they know where that truck is located because, well, GPS, right? Yeah. And so when the driver is at your location... And is it has their truck with your package on it, right? That oh, yeah, triggers I, not, the cloud cam and unlocks the door. Yeah, what, so, what I'm not doing here is flipping over my desk and saying absolutely no under no circumstances. I'm doing this. Forget this. This is a bad idea. What I'm just thinking that there's just one step in the process I'd like to know more about if this was something I was going to do, and that's it. Right. And at this time, we really don't have any information on that. Right. Now, the other thing that we did, we published a, a first look at the August Smart Lock Pro. And what's interesting here is that August Smart Lock, August.com, Jason Johnson's company, we've had Jason on the podcast in the past, Mm -hmm. sold themselves to the parent company of Yale, which is a a company named Asa Abloy. It's all one big happy family now. It is. And so in in the past, when I would talk with lock manufacturers, um, they all universally spoke the same line. And it was even, even when I got them in the same room together but separately in the same room together, whatever, under a number of different circumstances. I was speaking with Kwikset and Schlage and Yale and a bunch of them, and they all spoke the same line. And their line was, you should totally buy a smart lock, and you should totally buy it from one of the companies 
that has had 100 years of experience making locks. Don't don't care necessarily which one. We understand if it's not ours, <laughs> but it should totally be one that knows what it is to make a secure lock. Well, and, okay. I guess they can't do that anymore. Not anymore. Not now. The thing about the August lock that made them acceptable as a secure solution, in part, was the notion that you weren't changing out the front of the lock. The lock cylinder was the lock cylinder, and they were compatible with the quick set. They were compatible with a Yale. They were compatible with the Schleg. So they, they were compatible using the original front lock cylinder. And what they made smart was their backside with Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. And uh, actually, it's always been Bluetooth. It's been BLE. They've used Wi-Fi bridges called August Connect or the mm-hmm. uh, the August Camera have spun mm-hmm. their Bluetooth bridge to Wi-Fi. So their hesitation was always around, do August know enough about Bluetooth to make it secure? And that was their their guidance. The thing that I always felt was that, that yes, they really had done their work to make Bluetooth secure. And, and, and that was one of the areas you could trust a tech company for was to understand what they were doing with Bluetooth. The... Quicks, the, the, the problem with the August locks, my personal experience, was always that they were rather large. They're, they're quite large on the inside of the door. And, uh, and that was my wife's impression, too, the first time we installed one. I've had two on the door. I've had the August and the first version and the second version. Not this pro version that we've reviewed, but, but the earlier ones. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, uh, she took one look at it and said, what the heck is that giant thing? <laughs> and the other problem with it is, is when these, the way these work is that they are a giant round cylinder mounted on the door, on the inside of the door, with a rotating sleeve around their periphery. And they have just one bump on the sleeve. And you're supposed to be able to tell from looking at that bump whether or not it's locked. You cannot see it from across the room. You cannot see it from anywhere unless you're right up on the lock. So unless you've actually watched it lock and seen them display their red LEDs showing that it's locked, you have no idea from across the room from 10 feet whether or not it's actually locked. Yeah, the Yale one, the interior has a traditional uh, lever. The lock switch. Yeah, the lever. Yeah, I have, yeah, lever. Thank you. That's a better word for it. So that's, yeah, I can easily see that from across the living room, whether that's in the locked position or the open position. And there are some things that were done traditionally that still make sense. That's a good interface. But the the other parts about the August program have been pretty good. You know, they you've got a keypad built into your lock. August, you can you can use it with or without a keypad. They sell a keypad if you want. So it's it's just a matter of picking the right thing, picking what works for you. Yeah, and I think if you're more reliant on your phone as a source of information for this, then the August is probably okay. Um, if I was the only person in my house, if my wife and my fa- if my wife and I were the only family members in this house, I think something like the August that little nub would be all right. But we have senior citizens in the house, so that doesn't really work for them. So even getting them to deal with the touchpad is kind of just a little bit on the uncomfortable side for them. But, uh, you know, technology marches on. So I, I guess really the solution here, as with anything, is picking the right public-facing technology that works for everyone that has to deal with it. Right. And one of the things you can do is, uh, you know, the, the benefit of these home kit locks is, is, of course, the remote access, which the locks do on their own also. But it's, it's also the status checking. You can see if it's closed or locked or not, open or closed. You can also use Siri to invoke closing or opening the lock. So, you know, when it's raining out and we don't want to run to the house with a bundle full of groceries, we'll tell Siri to unlock the door and Siri will dutifully unlock the door. And then we can make a dash for it, knowing that the door is open mm-hmm. and we don't have to fumble with a touch screen. Or we don't have to fumble with keys or any of that stuff. There you go. 
And with the the more modern approaches like the watch or the newer phones, you know, not not counting the iPhone six, but newer ones that can respond to the command that invokes Siri, you can do that without having to dig your phone out. And that overcomes a big problem because in the past, the problem was you'd have to unlock your phone, you'd have to find the app, you'd have to wait for the app to load, you'd have to then unlock it, and then it would you know five steps later you've actually unlocked your door. Right. Mm -hmm. That's kind of absurd. But being able to invoke it with a voice control, being able to invoke it with proximity or touch-sensitive touch, capacitive-sensitive touch, as some of them do, you know, all of these ways are about fast access and secure access at the same time and ease. Yeah, I got to tell you, the geofencing in uh, HomeKit with the new lock is nice. I've always been a little bit questionable on geofencing because if, if my phone's on the inside of the house, am I unlocking my door for strangers by approaching the door to see who's there kind of thing, <laughs> you know? It's it's always I, I, geofencing is one of the ones for locks that I've been a little hesitant on. Well, it works you can great for the, other things. But. Yeah, with iOS 11, you can set up the geofencing so it only locks when you exit the fenced area, and it will unlock when you re-enter the fenced area, not necessarily when you're 10 feet away from the lock. Right. So if you're still within the fenced area, the, right. The if you're inside the, the yeah, if you're inside the geofence, it will basically leave the lock alone, whether it's locked or unlocked. Yeah. And then it will make sure that it's locked when you leave the geofenced area. Yeah, and I've been using that for for other things. I've been using geofencing for did I leave my stove on and getting the the report, hey, you've left the house, the oven's still on. Mm -hmm. Check that kind of thing. And uh, so I, I've been using geofencing successfully for other things, but I'll have to look at it for the lock. Yeah, not going to lie. I'm just now getting into HomeKit. Uh, just this summer, I started getting into HomeKit. Mm. Uh, I've got a handful of bulbs and a couple of switches and now a lock and... I am going to be the guy who's going to look at when Ikea fully jumps into their home kit thing. Cause I've got an Ikea eight miles and an hour away. Yeah. So I've got, uh, I've got the lock. I've got the lights. I've got the switches. I've got the weather sensors. I've got uh, a couple of thermostats. I've got a whole bunch of home kit toys and they're great. And I've been using the most recently. I set up uh, all of the Halloween decorations. Oh, there you go. And I set them up with simply sunset and sunrise commands so that everything brightens up at sunset. I'm going to delve off the script here for just a minute. Uh, I used to have a white iMac, one of the old G3 iMacs, that I would put in my front window uh, for Halloween time with a couple of different pumpkin mm. graphics on that. And that was that was fun. That was entertaining. The kids thought it was great. So, so this year, I'm going to use a projector. Oh, hey, that works. Um, we, I've got a couple of projectors here and I'm going to spread some sheer fabric across a frame. Oh yeah. There you go. And then project, and uh, project onto that. Yes. <laughs> okay. I was of... debating getting a trellis and putting one of the projectors in the yard, projecting onto the trellis kind of thing. Oh, hey, and that'd have be cool a, too. a ghost move through the trellis kind of thing. Well, unfortunately sneaks up on me a little too much with everything else that I've got to do with life. Sure. So I, I have lots of good ideas, but I usually get them around the 28th. Maintaining a home server is work. <laughs> I'm jabbing you there. I know, <laughs> yeah, I know I you are. Yeah, and writing about it is more work. So That's for sure. So we, we've talked a long time going back in history about how IBM noticed that deploying Macs gave them a huge cost savings, that putting Apple across their enterprise reduced calls for IT, reduced trouble tickets, reduced maintenance, and, and basically made all the computing options a lot simpler within IBM. Walmart is joining IBM in that happy condition. Walmart has their everyday low prices slogan, and now they're going to implement an employee choice computing option for their associates. 
so that their associates can uh, have Apple products and they can enjoy the cost savings while enjoying the the productivity of their employees. So they're they're going to go ahead and deploy an employee program. Uh, we don't know anything about the, what this choice plan looks like or when it's going to be implemented. But the idea is that if they can go ahead and provide Apple products at a discount to their employees, that they can go ahead and have productivity savings, they can reduce support calls, and and all those things that increase company profitability. Yeah, I've done consulting work off and on for a long time, obviously less when I was in the Navy, but I would do a lot of cross-platform work and have still do a lot of cross-platform work. But then I say some point, well, why don't you standardize on Macs? And then they do. And then I find I'm making one fifth the money that I used to from them. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's, well, that's that sounds like honest work. Well, it, it's honest me. work, but it's one of those, you know, <laughs> Hey, this would be a great idea. If that, you know, kind of yeah, shoots you, myself personally in the yeah. foot. But my, my relation to this is, is why is this not something that, that Walmart recognized sooner. They've they've had thousands of locations for decades. This is this is not a new effect. IBM saying this in 2015 just gave solid numbers for the first time rather than well you'll save a couple hundred bucks. I, IBM's analysis said that it saves the company $270 per seat as compared to a Windows PC. It, and and that's annually. That's not over the life across of how many seats right and that's over geez i don't even know 90 that's over ninety thousand seats at the time mm-hmm. so oh, 217,000 mac os and ios devices and that's in june 1st of 2015 and those numbers haven't gone down those numbers the, the per seat is probably the same and they've right. increased so 270 270 multiplied across 217,000 is uh 58 million five hundred ninety thousand. so uh, good math way to go Thank you. Uh, so it, this is, again, this is not some magical new number that just popped out because of Apple's partnership with IBM. This has just about always been this way. Well, yes, but had they made this move in 2002, it would have been a very different story. Had they made this move in 2012, it probably would have been about the same story. Right. Yeah, I'm not saying that, well, geez, IBM should, IBM, not IBM. I'm not saying that Walmart should have figured this out in 1991 or anything like that. <laughs> But I think any time in the last decade would probably have been safe for them to make this dramatic move. Right. It, it's not like some sea change happened that makes now the right time. It's it's that they, you know, a number of things have to happen. You, you don't move any large corporation quickly. It's, it's, it's nice to be able to talk about just-in-time delivery and just-in-time inventory and, and all of these kinds of things. But when you're steering IT purchases and you're talking about large deployments of new resources to, to employees. Uh, these things start with a trial. Then they start with a wider rollout. And then they start with a committee that looks at the results of that rollout. Sure, in the 10,000 uh, meetings. Yeah, I've been involved yeah, in so, part of that. And sure. so it takes time to steer that ship. Yeah, but I'm pretty certain that this time to steer the ship didn't start 10 years ago. Oh, probably also true. This also comes down to who makes the purchasing decision. There are people who in IT who, you know, like you, uh, see their job preservation tied to the resources they deploy. And also they deploy what they're trained on. You know, if they're certified in so many different parts of, of a provider's program, then they want to keep recommending that because they know the what, what they're just deploying. Yeah, I mean, for sure, 
IT people can be the biggest interference, at least in my experience on this kind of thing. I would say impediment, right? Yeah. If you, if you come into a situation where you're trying to recommend Max to a business that's already entrenched and already has an IT staff, your first stop is the IT office. It's got to be the IT office and figure out what you're dealing with from there. Yeah. And so there's the, you know, uh, the question of lower upfront cost versus lower support cost over time, the cost of licensing fees per platform. Um, and, and as you know, on the IT side, you may or may not take into account user satisfaction and any sort of residual value for selling used equipment at end of life. Mm, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not certain that that Walmart is looking at any kind of resale value in old Macs or old iPads or anything like that in this regard. No, but it's it's certainly a question mark where you have that value that you might not have had on a low cost it, PC. It, it can be, and people will use an argument about this. Well, what about upgrading PCs? Well, I got news for you. If, if you've got a business with a hundred seats and computers, it's not that cost effective to do that just from a labor perspective. In, in an enterprise, the only upgrades that you will ever see happen to uh, an end user's computer are going to be RAM upgrade and potentially a hard drive upgrade. Uh, even, the, even that is rare. and And a laptop battery might be issued. Yeah, well, it might also be issued sure. a separate, yeah, but, separate charger. But as far as, Those are your upgrades. Yeah, but as far as That's ra- all you yeah, get. Yeah, but even so, even RAM and hard drives, it's nine times out of 10, you're going to get a box and you're going to put it on a desk. Yep. And that's how that's it's going it. to stay until another box comes and gets put on the desk. Absolutely true. So. Absolutely true. But this this came out of the uh, Jamf, which is a device management it's platform. It's an amazing platform. I mean, and this is completely unsolicited, by the way. I've been using the software for a long time, but we have no commercial relationship with them at all. Well, no, no, you lie because they have paid for ad space on the podcast. In the oh, but they're not currently. Unfortunately, well, no. okay. Well, there you go. We we do not currently have a commercial relationship with Jamf. I was not aware that we had previously had one, but I've been using Jamf when it was called Casper, and been using software by these developers for a very long time. It is an amazing deployment suite that covers that covers the entire range of Apple hardware, including the Apple TV. So if, if you're in a, if you're in a business situation with more than I want to say five or six seats, take a look at it. It, it sure beats doing manual installs. Absolutely. Configuration profiles, user permissions, the yep. whole thing. Talking about TV, Apple is going to debut their TV slate in 2019. They're, they're reportedly aiming to have a small slate of TV shows ready to debut. Uh, they're going to be devoid of, of violence, profanity, or nudity, so it's not going to be an HBO or Showtime kind of slate. The first few shows will be available to everyone with an Apple device, not just Apple Music subscribers. Uh, it could could launch via the TV application that we have on iOS and tvOS. The Apple executives want to make sure that these things are family friendly, and so that that dovetails nicely with the reboot of Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories that, that we heard about. Yeah, this is n- not an unsurprising move given Apple's stance on pornography in the App Store. On the other hand, there's that Vital Signs semi-autobiographical Dr. Dre thing that's going on that had group sex scenes and violence, etc. I'm not. Hey, I don't want to hear about I'm, that. I'm not exactly sure. Well, <laughs> I understand that, but I'm not exactly sure how that fits into Apple's vision anymore. Well, the I would say that that show would probably be absent in terms of the debut for everyone on the the iOS and tvOS platform. I would think so, but it, the fact remains that it exists and is Apple funded. It's I would be surprised if after the several million that they spent on it that they're going to leave it fallow. Apple has had to address explicit content 
in the past, whether it's through explicit podcasts or explicit movies that are on iTunes or explicit music that's on Apple mm-hmm. Music. And so I, I think they would fall back on their experience and their knowledge trying to label those shows accordingly. And if they release, when they release Vital Signs, that they will do it with the same kind of, of guidance that those they've given on those kind of pieces of content in the past. Yeah, it's just, it's just an interesting diverge. And plus, the, the gentleman from Sony that they hired, I forget their names right off the top of my head. The two of them, But yeah. they were responsible for shows like Breaking Bad. So th- this is a bit of a sea change for them. Well, so the, this is the difficulty is that you want to make compelling content. You want to make content that addresses different audiences. And you you need to make content that also appeals on an international level as well, which is why they recently hired uh, Channel 4 executive Jay mm-hmm. Hunt. So it's it's not that everything has to always be family friendly. It's that if they're coming out with this stuff and they want to give people teasers, that those teasers of it need to be appropriate. Sure. Uh, yeah. And to be clear, they're not necessarily talking about removing all violence and nudity from the movie store or anything like that. No, no, no. This they're is- just talking about for the things that would be publicly distributed, right. for the things that would be their initial slate of of offerings that are made by yeah, the Apple. Apple produced stuff that they're going to toss up for their video. Offering. Right. Those will be family. Friendly. So I, I guess this was spawned by Tim Cook taking issue to carpool karaoke. Was it Ariana Grande? Uh, I don't remember which artist, but he basically, he, he ordered edits. So that's, that's, that's an interesting, I mean, he obviously can, he's the CEO. And any producer would, right? But, any producer is capable of ordering it. Yeah, edit. but that's, it, it's an interesting change of step from how things are normally handled at Apple. We're not in the Steve Jobs era anymore. I mean, Tim Cook makes a lot of executive decisions about things, but it is well documented that he defers a lot of judgments on other things to the rest of his executive, de- the rest of his executive department, as opposed to Jobs, who famously would say, no, this is how I want it. And this is how it's going to be. So it, well, this is, I mean, this is. Cook certainly has that power sure. and has, and, and one of the measures of power is how you carefully exercise it, having the power and delegating and then using it in this example makes it almost a more meaningful exercise of power. A, a scalpel rather than a broadsword is what you're talking about. Well, and, and the, um, the, the limited use makes it more impactful, right? If, if you go around throwing your power around everywhere, um, it's, it's like the boy who cried wolf, mm-hmm. right? You start to take it a little less seriously or a little less impactful. And certainly, you know, the, the, um, using it once and holding it back the rest of the time, using it in limited amounts, saving it for a really special occasion, saving it for that which really matters, mm-hmm. right? And this is about, and in, in, in a very real way, this is a public face of Apple. How do you preserve what the image of Apple is? You know, the image of Apple is many things to many people, but, but to Tim Cook, who gets to decide what that face of Apple is, it's a, a company that is a big tent company. It's broadly welcoming. It's broadly inclusive. And if you're talking about content, it, it has to appeal to a broad audience, but at the same time, include people and not, not exclude people. So you want to make something that everyone can partake sure. of, at least initially in this initial slate. Yeah, to be clear, I don't have a problem with what Apple is doing. It's Apple's money, and they can spend it as they see fit on whatever they see fit. 
And obviously the, the smoke that is the rumors about Apple getting into unique content, even though Eddie Q famously said that they had nothing to talk about at this time was there was clearly has always been fire underneath it. And it just, this is, was surprising to me given our, what we know about Apple's involvement with vital signs. That's all. Yeah. In other news, Apple acquired wireless charging specialists powered by proxy. Apple, you know, their, their typical statement is that they purchase smaller startups from time to time and don't talk about why. But uh, this is really obvious that they wanted to get wireless charging, a wireless charging powerhouse. You'll forgive the pun in-house rather than having to, to start from scratch on things. Well, so the, the real issue here is that power by proxy has the ability to deliver large amounts of power over wireless charging based on the, the Qi standard. Mm -hmm. And they've been using it for things like docking of drones and medical equipment and things like that. They can, they can deliver with 91% efficiency, a hundred Watts of power. Well, this is great news if you're talking about how can we charge an iPad Pro quickly. Well, also a little bit of math. A 15-inch MacBook Pro is 87 watts. Yep. So this is a purchase that makes tons of sense in terms of how to get cheap power efficiency up. And you can see why they'd want to own that. Oh, yeah. It's clear. They, I mean, the current Qi standard is 15 watts, which Apple isn't immediately adopting. The... The iPhone 8 can charge at 5 watts. Tim Cook said that they're going to increase that slightly, probably up to 7.5 watts. But, the, uh, yeah, nothing supports 15 watts. The iPhone 10 doesn't support 15 watts. The air power, we'll see what the total wattage on that is, but it's likely not to exceed 15 watts in aggregate. We'll see. Right, but th that makes a lot of sense. Now, the... Um it's, it's unlikely that we're going to see a MacBook charger ready for purchase anytime no. soon because, you know, it would take a lot. You, you can't just retrofit a laptop, especially when your laptop design is around being thin. You, you need to design for this yep. component. But owning that technology makes a ton of sense for Apple because why would they let anyone else oh, have that sure when they can go ahead and make their devices yeah, it work Yeah, sure does. Better. And also realize that Apple will buy companies sometimes for production purposes. There, there might be uses for this in manufacturing plants or anything in-house in Apple. Like if you remember, there was a big brouhaha about an FCC filing last year about an Apple about an Apple device that was roughly the same shape as an Apple TV. Well, it turned out to be the door locks at Apple at Apple Park. Right. So in in years past, if you were going to try and secure an office building, you could do badge readers. You could do uh, card where you'd have a mag stripe and have to swipe them to enter. And so here they decided that they wanted to have something that of course had their own enclosure mm -hmm. and used their own technology for badging in. So th this may be something related to something Apple wants to do inside manufacturing. Who knows? We'll, we'll see if anything comes out of this or maybe we won't. Maybe it'll just be integrated into something as time goes on. Siri was a purchase. The technology underneath yes, Siri was. Was, was bought. So came, came out of SRI, which is why it's named like it is. And speaking of that, we have a tip about how to teach Siri to correctly pronounce names on your iPhone. Now, if you have a name that's not like Mike, <laughs> if you have a name like Vadim, which could easily be pronounced by an assistant Vadim, then that's not helpful, right? If you want to say call Vadim and it says, you know, calling Rahim, well, it, it makes up some other name or picks another name from your address book that sounds similar as opposed to being spelled correctly, um, you can go ahead and teach Siri how to pronounce your name correctly. In contacts, you can set it up, or you can usually use Siri and say, you know, pronounce it like this. And he says, okay, which pronunciation should I use? And you can play options. 
and get it. We've got a link to this in the show notes. And rather than me try and explain it verbally, we're going to go ahead and link to that video that we put together in the show notes, and you'll be able to go ahead and make all of your unusually sounding names sound correct. Yeah, I was really surprised that when I, when I was looking at doing this, because I obviously have a challenging last name, they, yeah. the it wasn't really well documented that you could do this. It was mentioned once in a keynote and kind of blown right through. And it it hides in Apple support pages, and we we actually did a video about it as well. It's uh yeah, it's a useful tip because I guarantee you, there's somebody in your contact database that has a challenging first or last name. I guarantee you. Oh, absolutely. You know, I have a friend, um, and and you'd be surprised the way that names get mispronounced by the assistant. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised it's, at all. <laughs> it's 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 well, yeah. So it's, it's totally worth going through. And it, it's, it's things like these alternate vowel sounds, like using the, uh, the I as an E sound or an, an EY combination that means A as pronounced, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the assistant will end up pronouncing that as a long E. Yeah. The, so, the T-H-E-L-E is what, in my last yeah. name, is what. I'm surprised you just spell that. I just, I'm surprised you didn't just nickname that as worthly. So there, there are two different ways of doing this, right? You can give a phonetic pronunciation. You can teach Siri through recording kind of thing, mm-hmm. or you can um, just nickname. And so that's really been the difficulty is that not only are these things hidden, it's not clear which is the best path to do. Right. And we tell you all about it in this video. Yes, we do. Mike, that brings us to the end of another perfectly good episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. And my third appearance. No kidding. Yeah. Time flies. I will celebrate in your honor. <laughs> okay. Where can people find you on the internet? Well, every week, every day, every weekday, and sometimes on weekends, you can find me in Apple Insider. But on Mondays, I have my own opinionated podcast. Uh, you don't say. Oh, you know, yeah, I know, right? At spacejavelin.com. Spacejavelin.com. Yep. That's brilliant. I'm Victor. I'm at VMarks on Twitter. I host the Apple Insider podcast here. You'll find my writings on Apple Insider on wristwatchreview.com. And also, you should check out the Scout Tech podcast on iTunes. And if you ask me really nice one day, I'll tell you where the name came from. I think I'll avoid doing that. <laughs> it's been a fantastic week. It's a fantastic episode. And we hope everyone gets the iPhone 10 that they want so dearly. We'll see you back next week. See you next week. Please feel free to check out our app on the App Store and leave us great reviews in iTunes. Go ahead and give us feedback and leave great reviews for the podcast. We are so glad you're a listener. We're so glad you're a reader. And we can't wait till the next time we get together with you. <laughs>